Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Tour Daily Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we're on the top of Alpe d'Huez. We're, we're, well, Johnny, set the scene, as you do. As I do, now that Ronan's not here. We, we are not above the tree line yet. We're looking out onto... To be honest, I always lose, lose where I am in the mountains. There, there are just mountains everywhere. There, the, the sun's Duz going Alpes down. over there. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. There's Alps over there, then. Yep. Um... I like the the sort of the effect when there is a mountain stack behind each other and then there's sort of like different lights hitting them. I don't know if there's a there's a German word for that, or, or but everyone knows what I'm talking about. Alpenglow. Alpenglow. Well, Alpenglow is when, like, sort of the sun's gone down and you get kind of like a glow off the tips of the mountains mm. that are maybe even still covered in in and like light the different or shadows or recently different... were. Oh, yeah. Okay, but yeah. Then you get the layers, you get mountain layers. Yeah, like the, the layers, the layers are what I'm crucially after. Yeah, um, yeah we're looking down, <laughs> we're looking down onto uh, all, all the, the sort of humongous metropolitan building site that's on top of Abduez. We saw a bike race. I didn't actually see any of the bike race in person, but it's kind of eerie how it's all happening below you and you're at the top and there's a sense of calm until it all, everyone falls back up. Um, but yeah, I can just see mountains and sky and nature have i done it justice in i feel like you're probably i think you've done a spectacular job you uh you didn't mention the two cranes that are just there not the birds the uh construction equipment i i think those are important to include uh but otherwise that's the the one blight on the landscape it is pretty beautiful beautiful up here i can also see a, a mikey who is holding a mic and will be telling us about his day actually on on the climb yeah we convinced Michael Better, our social media manager slash editor, uh, to come on the pod today because yeah, I mean, Mikey had the by far the most interesting day. Uh, as we were saying before, you you were in the press room most of the day. I was in the hotel room much of the day and then watched the very end of it. Uh, and Mike, you went down to Dutch Corner and saw all kinds of interesting things. We're going to get to that in a little bit, though. First and foremost... Today's episode is brought to you by the all-new Scott Foil RC, a bike designed for breakaways and attacks. The new Foil RC is 16 watts faster than its predecessor. In real-world real terms, that is 1 minute and 18 seconds faster over 40 kilometers. Not sure what speed that's at. we got to find out. With updated UCI rules, Scott engineers and designers took the platform and pushed it beyond what was previously possible. While aero is important, a patented new seat post and improved carbon layup deliver a bike that is 10% more comfortable and 9% lighter. For more info, head over to scott-sports.com. And thanks to Scott and the new foil for sponsoring today's episode. Like I said, we're going to get into Mikey's adventures, uh, travails later. First and foremost, there was a serious bike race on today, a very difficult bike race. Affected, I would say, somewhat by the heat and also just the tactics of who is now in the yellow jersey. But, Johnny, give me the rundown. Where do we end up? I'm going to keep it simple today and not tie myself in, in knots and circles trying to say exactly what happened. Thomas Pidcock won the bike race. He chased across to the breakaway with some amazing descending. Pippa, as you'll hear from later, described it as like he, he and the bike were one. Some bike riders you see sort of it's them trying to mangle their bike around corners, but he was one with the bike. It was amazing to watch. 
he rode away from Lou Meinches, who came second and sort of was waiting for Pidcock to blow up, but which never really materialised. He finished 48 seconds back as Pidcock took his first tour stage victory, which is sort of fitting for a, such a young guy who's won Cyclocross World titles, won Olympics. Olympic gold medals. He actually ranks the today's victory below the Olympic gold medal and above the Cyclocross World title. Hmm. Um, which gives you a little bit of an insight. But in terms of him going full... I mean, I'm just... I'm going ahead of myself and giving the analysis, so I'll just stick to what we're doing. In third place... <laughs> this always happens with the rundown. Um, third place, Chris Froome. Great ride. He's he great. Was, it's just, you know what? It's nice. It's like with Pog yesterday. It's the same with all these guys who want to dominate. So when you see them sort of fall and then rise again, that's kind of what we're after. And... Amazing, like just great to see him out there him and Pidcock as well sort of like a father-son combo <laughs> taking on the Tour de France <laughs> huge smile coming across the finish line yeah I bet coming third I bet do you think he'd ever th- have thought that he'd come third on the stage of the Tour de France again no I think uh, he would if you'd given that before the race he'd have snapped your hand off oh absolutely even with those absolutely. really bony arms uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I did write a story about this, and and the first paragraph might be slightly mean. I don't know. It's also no, accurate. it's not mean. Kaylee, yeah. you can't. You, you're not. I don't think you're capable of being mean. <laughs> Leave the meanness to people like me, and then Ian's mean to bad people. But I'm sometimes I'm I'm the mean one. Um, fourth, American Nielsen Powerless. There's something for everyone here. All of the English-speaking world, right? Um, in fifth, today Pagacha, who outsprinted Vingegaard and Garant Thomas to the line. Those three sort of rode away a bit. Of not cat and mousing, but sort of like on off on off after the stage. Garrett Thomas was showing Adam Yates what the race was like, and he was like showing his hand, like revving a motorcycle, going and then stop and then like that. It was it was like two. It's like if they're both mute and they're having to explain what had just happened over the past thirteen kilometers. Um, that is the universal sign for that, though. Yeah. Full gas, and then and then off. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. We'll talk about it. It was. Um, yeah, that was that was cool. He also doused himself with three bottles of water on his while warming down, which is I think you'll see on our social actually. I think it's in the hands of Michael Better yeah, already. It's on the internet now with a Missy Elliott song behind it. Oh, is it? <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, what, what else would you expect from us? He also um, referred to Pagacha and Vingegaard as whippersnappers, which I yeah. love. Yeah. I want him to say that in a sort of American like whippersnappers, like <laughs> like he like he whip, like he's like there carving wood on his porch somewhere. I, I like this uh, late career Garrett Thomas Renaissance. It's yeah. just like a, like slightly peeved dad. <laughs> like, yeah, a quiz machine. <laughs> <laughs> I um, want to wear my sunglasses and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a terrifying image. Um, eighth, Enrique Mass had a better day, finished three seconds down on, on Thomas in that group. Sepp Kuss, same time as Enrique Mass, and tenth, Giulio Ciccone, who was in the break. So he was just sort of managed to hang on there. I mean, Bode and Yates Se- and Gaudi were just a bit behind. Sepp was essentially the third or fourth he strongest. He was brilliant. Yeah, he, he was, was just like today. kept coming back and. Yep. Which is also a function, again, of the of the on off nature of what was happening. And, and you know, Garrett Thomas. With the whippersnapper quote was basically like, yeah, I just knew that the way that they were riding, it was I just I just had to keep doing my own thing, and they just would come back. Youthful over exuberance. Exactly. He said they'll go a thousand watts, and I obviously can't do that, so I would just <laughs> I would just wait and ride back. Sort of like you know when you see those videos on YouTube of like an old dog, and then there are like two puppies who are just like sort of playing, and the old dog's just sitting there with a face like, oh, when will this all be over? That's sort of like Garrett Thomas and the other two. <laughs> 
It was a good day of racing. It was not as uh, spectacular as yesterday because yesterday was frankly one of the best stages we've had in, I don't know, the last decade or so. Yeah. But it was a really solid day at the Tour de France. Well, to kind of get into, well, a bit about yesterday and and some deeper analysis of today, you caught up with Pippa York once again. And I think we should just throw to that, honestly. Let's do it. Okay, so I'm back with Pippa York in the Alpe d'Huez press room, which is still very busy because people haven't snuck off for an early dinner because we've got a bike race on our hands now, a proper one, with competitors and uncertain outcomes. And it feels like the tour is finally coming alive. Yeah, uh, almost everybody thought it was over yesterday when Pogaccio cracked, but that's kind of discounting his recovery and uh, we saw today he wasn't afraid to just try out and see where he was and he was I would say he was probably almost 99% back to where he was before he cracked so it should be good when these coming days I mean let, let's revisit yesterday because I didn't hear from you yesterday and we had to draw our own conclusions having having never raced a bike at that level but I mean what when you were watching what was going on up on the way to the Col de Granon, and even before that, with all the hectic racing, what was what were your main takeaways? So from uh, the last kilometres of the Col de Telegraph, normally when you're going to ride Galibier, so the Col de Telegraph is the first part. There's a small downhill, and then there's a lot. There's a long fall slant to the last six k. Nothing much happens. Mm. So if, you, if you're going to try and go away on on the Galibier, you, if you're really really stupid you'll attack at the bottom of the call the telegraph and ask me how I know <laughs> um, how do you know Pippa it's because I did it and then I cracked <laughs> um, so yeah so when when Jumbo took it up it turned into almost a junior category race with them just right if you can do that I can do that and they pr so Jumbo so basically Roger and Vinegar provoked Pogaccio that much that he, th he, ha he had to show he was the strong or still strong as strong as them, which was a mistake for him. He said just to follow, um, and he paid for that later. You know, so the guys, you know, the one two, one two, kept attacking him, and then finally it kind of calmed down just because the, the gradient increased that much. But it, it, I think the mistake that Pogacar made was he didn't eat enough afterwards because he was always slightly worried there was going to be another attack, and it looked like he got the hunger knock when mm. he turned on to call the ground on, and then he did about. Four kilometers before, and, and it's hard from the bottom. And it looked like he just ran out of um, blood sugar and the lights went out. But some people were saying that maybe his um, he showed his inexperience when he was following Roglic's attacks as well. When sort of everyone could kind of tell that Vingar was going to be the main guy, but is do you as Pagacha, do you have to follow both? You have to understand the kind of Slovenian politics of it. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, I think, you know, Sir Roistik has said a few things about Pogacar mm. in Slovenia and Roistik is much more um, popular mm. at home. So there's that coming to There's a personal battle going on there. Never mind the kind of competition stuff. So uh, for Taddy not to allow Primoz Roistik back in the race was one objective and then to cover Jonas Vinegard was another objective. But he's, you know, there's, there's two guys at a high level and you can't always do that. And he just, you know, got whatever wrong and we, you, you had a clue already when he was into the last portion of um, the Galibier and he had salt marks on his jersey mm. so he'd got some so his 
hydration or his nutrition was, was going wrong already then. Um, but that kind of showed that his hydration wasn't enough. So that he fell apart later. You know, it's probably linked to that and to the lack of not because you have to basically stuff your face mm. on the downhill when you do calls because you're riding for 45 minutes an hour flat out and you can't eat on the way up so you have to really overeat on the way down and you sometimes feel slightly sick but you so when you go into the last call you, you feel kind of thick in yourself but after a couple of minutes that kind of gets worn out of you and you're back into kind of just surviving on your reserves again we did see he um, on the Glibby, I think it was. He was smiling to the TV cameras and sort of joking with them. Do you think that was a sort of? Did he over over egg himself? Where like what's what's the sort of politics or mindset of that? Or is that just him? That's just the psychology of not showing. He's because the, the images are shown in the team cars. Yeah. So it's the psychology of of showing okay. he's not he's not hurt by what happened to him and he had it under control, which he did. Yeah. You know, so point, he yeah. had it under control, and then he and then he kind of put in his own dig in as well, and and hurt the other ones. And so there's only him and Vingegaard left. Um, but that was a mistake, you know. That was a and then the car, his car came and and calmed him down. But there was a couple of moments, you know, when when Jumbo came in and gave bottles out to their riders, and Bagaccio was looking was asking why where was his car because mm. his car should have been first, you know. So so. There was a couple of mistakes from the team car and then, and then personal mistakes from Pogacar. And what do you make after the finish line when Pogacar came up and sort of congratulated Jonas and even his <laughs> comments afterwards seemed kind of... Mm, not Obviously not pleased for them, but he kind of respected the fact that someone had finally brought the fight to him properly at the Tour de France. When you look at it, this is the first time that he's had to race at his maximum. Yeah. Without, you know, so, and by that I mean it's a, a maximum imposed by somebody else. Whereas before he's always been slightly, you know, he's always he's always taken himself to hit what he thinks mm. is his maximum, and he's had to go beyond that. So he's went to a kind of deeper level mm. of pain and, and kind of effort. And he's quite he's respectful of his his, his rivals. Yeah. You know, he doesn't. It's not personal. Mm. It might be you know it might turn slightly personal with Rodzik, mm. but I think even then he would he would respect the competitor. Yeah, I mean, it's something that Roy Keane, for those who follow football, would be really <laughs> upset with because he wants everyone to be sort of at, at each other's necks. But um, but Pogacar did uh, promise afterwards that he would do come back fighting, and he was like, "Well, if they've taken minutes off me, then I'm going to try and take minutes off them tomorrow." And he, you know, he said it's not over. You know, I'm out for revenge, which is sort of what everyone wants to hear. Everyone wants it to be built up, and Netflix must be rubbing their grubby little fingers <laughs> at the prospect of a. I don't know if their fingers are grubby, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then today, we were, like the race was kind of. I think maybe was it was it tiredness that meant it didn't all kick off from the start or how? T- talk us through how so, you. So, so this is one of the epic stages. Um, you start. You come out of Briançon. You climb the lottery, which is a big road from this side, but it's usually a headwind, so it, it's it's really hard to attack. And then you turn onto the Galibier, and if you. If you're going to attack there, it's going to be a long day out, which we which we saw when the break went, you know. So some of the break went there, and then Pitcock went across on the descent. Um, and then it's a long day out, and you're kind of using your resources wisely because when you come to the Quad Fair, it is really hot at the bottom before you reach the tunnels, and then the kind of little flatter bit in the middle. Then it's really hard again, so you have to kind of manage every each section, and even when you've done the Quad Fair, then you're You've got the downhill and there's an uphill bit in it which kills you. 
mm. really, really overs. Yeah, uh, Ian Boswell was saying the same thing today. As they, as they're doing, it's like that bit's actually one of the Th- worst that's, bits. That's the worst bit because <laughs> you've, you've you've kind of got used to that spinning over the yeah. pedals, barely touching them, and you come to that that um, bit where they've had to rebuild the road because the the old road got taken away by an avalanche. Um, and it's 11, 12%, and it just it just kills you. And we've seen the tanks go there before, um, even in the GC race. So you have to kind of carefully manage each section. Uh, and, um, yeah, and that's what they did in the front. And they were lucky that when Jumbo were riding behind, they were always going to um, focus on the on Abduez and not overexpose Vingegaard before, you know, even... No, no risk on the descent, which we saw the brake took, you know, a minute and a half back. So that was always going to be the case. And, and up to us, when the GC guys come come there, it's always a matter of elimination until you get about 4K from the top. And then you can do the last 10 minutes flat out if if the circumstances are right. And, and then Vingago followed every attack and showed that he's he's up to the task of potentially defending this jersey. At least, at least through the Alps. Oh yeah, he was the strongest Pogacar. Yeah. Yeah, and Pogacar didn't exist. He didn't insist when he saw that would happen. Mm. So he, he he put in a couple of big accelerations, and you could see the speed he was going. You know, with the yeah, yeah. the band, the the barriers were going past pretty fast. So he's doing thirty k an hour uphill, which is you know, for for a normal cyclist, you know, you're doing fifteen, sixteen, yeah, yeah. and he's doing twice that. Yeah. And they're almost having to break for the corner when he attacked the first time. So we see, and that's the speed that the, 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 that the Tour de France winning level is. Yeah. But because Vinigo was right with him, you know, he didn't insist. If he didn't insist, he'd, the other guys would never have come back. Did you see this? Did you see the smile between between the two as they come? Apparently, nothing was said. It was just a smile as they sort of realised they were they're going yeah, to check each other out. And, and that's what happens. You know, you you attack the the other guys attack you, or you attack them, and and you kind of smile about it because you're testing each other. And if you're up to it, you know, you're okay with it. If it's all part of that kind of psychological mm. warfare that goes on. And Garrett Thomas was talking. He said that the race wasn't actually that. F- that well, on the, the in the GC group up the Abduez, I nearly forgot where we were for a second. Um, he said it wasn't that fast until the end, and they kind of rode it slow, which meant that he didn't get as much of a gap. But is is that just Jumbo Visma sort of taking stock, or? Yeah, the, the thing is when you when you're guiding the, the race leader up. Um, don't put them into difficulty. Mm. So they're always talking to you know slow down. You know, you if they, if they have to you use a little f- where the hairpins are, they flatten out a little bit, and you can kind of slow down on them. And it never really the pace never really picked up until um, Sepkos hit the front, mm. and then we saw you know Godou and Bardet in trouble. Um, so they were probably waiting until that last four kilometers where it gets quite it gets most difficult it, you know it goes back to 11 percent again um you can ride normally you can ride that last 10 minutes at really at your maximum if you have to and now now that we're sort of heading out of the alps at least with with the gc battle and it's the pyrenees now it's all or nothing for pagacha in the pyrenees how different do you see the the battle being there do you see Pagacha being able to do something different to how he's he's done it in the Alps. Well, he's not going to surprise anybody in between, you know. So yeah. those the, those stages round, you know, even Saint Etienne and then to Mont, where it's really grippy and mm. and boiling hot, 
and we've seen kind of teams attack there. Well, that's not going to happen because he doesn't have the team, and Jumbo totally have control of the thing. So, you know, Jumbo have the, the even if Pogacar went away with three teammates, you know, he's up against six guys from Jumbo who are yeah. equal. So they're going always going to come back. So I suspect, or if I was in UAE, just take it easy. You know, just let mm. Jumbo take all the pressure. Then Pogacar only has to ride behind Vinigo yeah and then just she's not under pressure anymore he's not doing the the, the he's not doing the podium as much yeah. he's not doing the you know the the interviews for the mm. press room he's all that stuff's over you still have pressure because mm. he's because he's in for the win but he's you know he's won at least half an hour of recovery time and Vinigo's lost half an hour yeah. so that all that adds up and then we, we saw Roman Bardet distance on on Abduez, which allowed Garrett Thomas to leapfrog him into third mm. place even though and even though the one two three all finished on the same time today what, what what does he have to do to try and win it he's not here to he said he's not here to podium he's going to try and have a have a go but how how will he be looking to approach sort of letting them two duke it out and then at the final second I, th I think you know Ineos realized that the the first two are, are level above where they are yeah. where their riders are um and Garrett Thomas doesn't have that big acceleration that those yeah. guys have. So he's always going to ride tempo to come back. And then if maybe if they hesitate, you'll try jumping them. But I don't think they'll let him go. Because no. they would try and use him then. You know, because he's... Then he would be a kind of stepping stone to ride. And if, you know, if it came to it, that either Pogaccio or, or Vingigo was in the front with Thomas, you know, Thomas would be there for the stage win. And, and the other one would be there for the GC. So that would kind of that kind of would even itself out. But I don't see that happening because he hasn't got the that that brutal acceleration that the other two have. And it's it's never really been his style either. Yeah, so does he have to wait for the sort of final time trial and hope for a, a Pogaccia esque crack of the, both of them <laughs> to then ride forty kilometers? Or he's praying for he's praying for COVID. <laughs> you know, you have to be realistic. No, you look yeah. at it, and, and he knows he can't follow those guys. Mm. Um, so then you're looking at you know circumstances outside of that their control. Do you think yeah. it makes the? Do you think if there's only one of them, say if Pagacha had a, his team manager succumbed to a COVID positive today is out of the race, if Pagacha touch really doesn't, but if he catch COVID and it's just Jonas Vingegaard and Gemma Visma versus Ineos and Garant Thomas, do you think that's a much more doable? Situation for Garrett Thomas than Pagacha? No, no, I don't think it is. So Jumbo, so Jumbo as a as a as a team kind of unit are above where Ineos are. So they're where you know Sky used to be. Mm. You know that level above everybody else, and they can. Run, we saw today they can run the race however they want. You know yep. if they start riding, right guys that you know. So like Nathan Van Hoydonk, yeah, he took back a, a minute and a half. <laughs> you know on the break. And he's not a climber. No. Christophe Laporte was up there too. And then Laporte the climb, yeah. was, you know, so Laporte's there until the Quad de Fer. Normally he would have been dropped as soon as yeah. it went uphill. Um, so those guys are really motivated. And and they've got a full, you know, the, the whole kind of unit is really strong. We'll stick with Ineos, but move away from just GC talk. Tom Pidcock, stage winner, he said that he was going for it at the start of the day. And uh, in the press conference, he's like, well, you know, I wanted to win the stage Saturday, and I have. So box ticked. And he's he's a funny guy, but also an in incredible bike racer. I think we've seen why Tom Pidcock is re regarded as the kind of third person in the Walt van Aert, yeah. Mathieu van der Poel thing. 
So, so we, as we saw in the winter, you know, the three turn up for cyclocross and everybody watches them. And I think that's going to be the future for, you know, Pidcock's going to climb up to that level. Mm. Um, and what he does on the GC, um, you know, for his first tour to win in Alpe d'Huez is just, you know, I never, you know, you can only dream about it. Yeah. For, for anybody who rides, you know, in a kind of climbing way, to win it out the way, it's just massive. It is just crazy. So to win that stage in your first tour is really, really impressive. And, and where he goes from that and where Ineos kind of guide him to, mm. um, will probably take a bit of care. Yeah. I th he, he ranked it below his Olympic gold medal, but above his cyclocross world titles, which I guess shows you that his career is heading more towards the road and that he does value it. But I, uh, Ineos seems to be suggesting, or Pickock seems to be suggesting to Ineos that he doesn't want to go straight into being Grand Tour contender or trying to build towards that. He still wants to, maybe with Paris Olympics in mind, but is that, that's, I guess that's a smart way to go, to let yourself sort of experience all that um, first. Yeah, I don't think he wants to throw himself into the kind of um, general classification training mm. because that will remove all the explosiveness from his cyclocross and yeah. from his mountain biking. So when you spend, you know, five, six hours a day just grinding away uphill and, <laughs> and doing altitude camps and, and you, you have that explosiveness, it's almost gr trained out of you yeah. because it's, it's not what's needed. Um, so he, he's got time to wait for that to happen kind of more naturally. And today, I mean, the way he took that win, he had to catch the the breakaway with some descending that sort of had everyone looking like that is impressive. Also, wow! <laughs> oh yeah, it was just wow. It was just when he when he caught Chris Froome and he went round him on the outside. Yeah, it was just really, you know, yeah, you just thought, but it didn't even look out of control or dangerous. Yeah. It looked totally, you know, settled. And and the way he was. The way he was sitting on his bike, he was he was in the bike. He was part of it, mm. whereas a lot of guys are kind of on top of their bike. Mm. So he was totally balanced on his machine. So, and and when he went around some of those sweepers and he was leaning over, he was leaning over more than everybody else. Mm. But it didn't look dangerous. Yeah. So and because then because he he didn't drift wide. Yeah. And then he he nearly got caught by Louis Meinhez on Abduez. But then the gap, they closed like within seven seconds, but then he just managed to extend it. Do you think that was just Manchester trying, trying desperately to make contact and then just not quite having enough to... So Manchester said he thought he would leave him out there to fry. Okay. So he did that kind of thing you do is when you're an experienced rider. You, you let the... If, especially when you're a climber and somebody mm. attacks you. Um, and they have to ride their maximum to do that. Mm. Is how long can they ride their maximum? Well, you ride a kind of tempo which you're com comfortable with. But Manchis couldn't see Tom Pidcock's face. He wasn't flat no. out. <laughs> uh, and the thing about Louis Manchis is he's not a winner. Okay. He doesn't have that mentality which which wants to kill the other person. Yeah. And Tom Pidcock does. Yeah, he does. He really does. He he has that. Um, and you need that to win stages. You know, you need that to win bike races. And Manchis doesn't have that killer instinct he doesn't have the oh i'm going to distance you now and you're never going to come back <laughs> you know he, that that's not part of his psyche and we saw that when he did his interview at the end and he kind of they asked him you know, why didn't you close the gap and he was kind of thinking oh i don't know well <laughs> speak another rider with a killer instinct we'll, we'll transition here another brit as well chris Froome back at the front of a bike race. I mean, I guess no one really expected him to take the stage, although at points you're like, what, maybe? But 
he still had a good ride. He finished, I think he finished ahead of the, the GC guys. He did. He finished third. Finished third. So, he, so, he, so, so for him, you know, he he was happy with that. Okay, so he lost two minutes yeah. to Pitcock, but he'll be happy with you. He actually returned to having an influence on some of the race because that's not been the case for him. Mm. So he'll probably look at that and we'll hear him saying it's part of his progression and all the rest of it. But where he progresses to from here is kind of hard to say. But at least he was part of the bike race again. And we didn't have to, oh, Chris Room is finished kind mm. of stuff, which is slightly depressing. Yeah, when, and the the shot of when, you know, he drops off the back of the peloton and he has to, like, wave, because he's very polite and he waves and sort of doesn't lose his rag. But then to change that today, it must mean a lot to him to be able to do that in the race where, you know, you had French TV afterwards interviewing him. Yeah. All the attention again. I guess it's probably a nice way, even if he doesn't go on to win another bike race let alone a tour stage I guess that moment where he's like you know what I, I was able to give it a good go probably he, means a lot he became relevant again yeah indeed well another fantastic day at the tour some great insight um, what, what do you look at I mean I'm kind of dreading the heat over the next few days Pippa that, I'm not really necessarily have looked forward yet because so much has happened but I'm dreading the heat I mean are you looking forward to anything over the next few days or I would have looked f I think I w if Pogaccio hadn't fallen apart on these days, you know, so in Santa Jane Mall, where it's going to be boiling hot, mm. and there's no oxygen. I was kind of looking forward to those days because Jumbo would have just murdered everybody. Yeah. But now it'll be slightly more controlled. Um, I think we're just going to have to wait to the last week and see yeah. what, you know, everybody's going to get through the next weekend. And then they'll have their rest day and then they're just going to throw themselves at the mountains. And I think we can look forward to that. I, I think we're scheduled to speak to you next on the rest day in Carcassonne. So if we if we don't speak to you before then, then we'll see you in Carcassonne. Yeah, maybe we can have an ice cream if it gets really, really hot. <laughs> I might need to. All yeah. Right. <laughs> we are, well, I mean, you guys covered sort of GC analysis and everything else pretty well. There are some other sort of major talking points for the next couple of days, and the big one is the heat, mm. really. Um, it's going to be so hot the next couple of days. I am I was looking at the, the profile for tomorrow, which goes from Borg Boisson, which is right at the bottom of the hill here, uh, and then finishes in Saint-Étienne, which has been a stage finish a number of times. There's some sort of famous Merckx finishes there, for example. Um, rolling, kind of lumpy, we get into toward the Massif Central, and, and um, I, I, looking at the profile and looking at the weather report, I'm a little concerned that they're essentially just going to like do a slow roll protest tomorrow. Like it could be one of those 32 kilometer an hour average speed days. Do they not understand that that will just take longer? <laughs> That's just extending their time in the heat. You should go to the start line and just hold up a big banner. Not a protest, but a big banner. Like, guys, if you ride slower, it takes longer. <laughs> the quicker you go, the sooner this will be over. They'll be like, isn't that moustache guy who wrote that really long article? And then someone's like, yeah, yeah, I think that's him. <laughs> but yeah, my... Um, I don't think... I think it's uh, too much to say my heart dropped a little bit when you uh, came to the press room this morning and were like enjoy the rest of this day because we're at altitude now and it's cooler and after this it's just going to be horrible for a long time which is a real way to sort of g up your employees into doing good work um, but i respect the uh, honesty nevertheless this is the last good day until paris boys <laughs> that's effectively what katie said but it is kind of true it's supposed to be close to 100 degrees fahrenheit in carcassonne by the time we get there on monday in fact over the weekend it's hotter by the time we get there it'll actually be cooled off a couple of degrees 
and yeah, it's just it's gonna affect it's gonna affect the racing this week. It will. We know that certain riders do better with it. Certain riders have kind of struggle with it. The reality is that there's not there's not a whole lot of sort of big GC stuff over the next couple of days, so th that is less of a concern. And that again kind of makes me think that that it'll be the stages will be kind of locked down basically because you've got Yumbavis with yellow. It, if it was it was still if it was still the opposite if you still had Pogacar and yellow you might have a couple opportunities for for Yumbo to kind of try to take a couple seconds here and there and and, and create some chaos but Yumbo wants the opposite of chaos and they have the team to prevent any sort of chaos whatsoever and so I think that it we're we're in for a couple a good breakaway days but probably not a whole lot on the GC front and as I say that I'm attempting to jinx it so that we get a lot on the GC front well that's what Pippa literally just said was that she was really looking forward to the Mon stage because if Yumbo didn't have yellow that was the stage where they were really going to try and do something so um the question that I had was is there any precedent for the organizers shortening stages is there like an extreme heat protocol I know at the tour down under they sometimes do that when it's like 45 degrees or whatever there is an extreme weather protocol that okay. could be implemented and the sort of exactly what happens is there's no set reaction basically uh, but there is a representative from the riders and a representative from the teams that would essentially get together with the with the race organizer, and they would decide what to do about it. And the rider representative is uh, Philippe Gilbert, mm. uh, recently forty, I believe. Just had a had a big birthday. Congratulations, Philippe. Uh, he was making some noises about trying to get that going, I believe. Yeah, I mean the thing about the tour. Well, they, they can make adjustments, but it is certainly a, it's a bigger ship to turn, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, like, they would they will they'll struggle to make any sort of significant changes. That said, yeah, it's entirely possible that that they could that they could you know shorten a stage or remove a climb or something like that. Um, I think one of the major concerns with the heat like this is just that over the course of six or seven hours, it's really hard to stay hydrated. Over the course of four. You know, you could probably top up beforehand and drink enough while you're on the road that you, you, you know, the riders will be okay. Um, so that would be a reason why they would they would probably attempt to shorten some of these stages. I don't know if that'll actually happen, and I don't know what the what the right solution would be, but I would not be surprised in the slightest if we see shorter stages. I think that the hope would be that they would decide what to do ahead of time and not like halfway through a stage where they suddenly say that, that there's 30k to go or something like that which is something that has happened before with the extreme weather protocol but they have enough notice of this this time you'd hope that they would just come out and say this is the new stage 14 or whatever it is well i imagine that the i mean the the towns that are along the route like the start towns and the finish towns especially pay a lot of money for the privilege they of do. that so uh would we be looking at instead of moving the start or moving the finish just starting where they were going to start, then chucking everyone in the buses for, I don't know, 50 or 100 kilometers and then kicking off again? Yeah, like they did at Milan San Remo when it snowed. Yeah, very. That, that's, a, that's a likely scenario. Um, the teams, the teams, the, the towns that the race passes through, certainly if they pay anything, they pay a lot less. The start and finish towns are the two that, that have really paid for the privilege. Uh, and so they will want to make sure that they, that they get that privilege. So that is a... Yeah, that's a likely scenario, I think. 
I feel like Ian is hoping that they get bussed mid-stage so he can write an article about which team has the best sort of bus vibes <laughs> going on. And I would like to read that. I mean, maybe if it doesn't happen, we could still just do it anyway. Like, which bus would you like to be transferred in halfway well, across the Well, we're stage? already working on which caravan car would you least like oh, yeah. to... This is, this is the biggest story of the tour for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Just uh, going back to the bus front quickly. Um, <laughs> an excellent point, Ian, says Johnny. <laughs> No. Uh, wait, wait. Is this? Is this? Was the bus front? Is that a segue to you talking about the front of the EF bus? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Wow. I, I literally didn't pick up on that. I was here like I don't remember him making a point there. So I've I've been doing some in-depth reporting over the last couple of days, and by in-depth reporting, I've just been trying to annoy. You've been causing trouble. A little. So today I finally got a response from EF about what happened to their bus uh, on the day that Magnus Court won a stage into Mejev at that day's start in Morzine, the EF bus driver had a bit of a whoopsie and <laughs> drove into a bollard. So, Matt Bowden, did he tell you this? Matt Bowden blames the ASO guys for this. I think anyone wants to blame someone else when they drive a bus into a <laughs> he bollard. Says, he says that the, the bus driver was sitting there like, I can't make this, I can't make this, I can't make this, and the ASO guy was like, now nah, you got it. <laughs> and... So the bus driver's like, okay, and then thunk. You can't, that's, that's the story I got. You can't trust the ASO guys in that sort of situation. There, you've got to, It's all on you. It's true. Because they all just melt into the background of the other people in the polo shirts, <laughs> and you'll never be able to pinpoint which one <laughs> caused you the mess. And they will not be there to clean it up. That's true. They're gone. They're somewhere else. Meanwhile, EF is left with a bumper hanging off and uh, just driving around the Alps looking for, for someone to fix it. So what I've learned is that uh, there was speculation within our car, <laughs> whether they'd just gotten another bus from somewhere. Not true. They patched up their existing bus. Apparently, it was not so badly uh, damaged that they were not able to fix it, which is a bit of an anticlimax and probably not enough for me to write a story about. But uh, <laughs> but sure, we can waste a couple of minutes talking about it. They uh, they patched it up, and it's, <laughs> it's looking right as rain. Johnny, did we talk about it in the podcast? Did we talk about your ride about doors in the podcast? I can't remember. No. And no. you know what? Since writing that piece, I'm really concerned that a lot, I didn't frame it well enough so people think I did that today. <laughs> or like in re not two years ago when um, now I I dress slightly better on the bike. I hopefully ride my bike slightly better. I'm well, still of course it took you three hours nervous. to ride up at all of those spectators. Just, you know what? They weren't, they weren't letting me just go Marco Pantani speed. They kept stopping me and holding me back. And that was, that was the reason it took three hours. That was your problem. But yeah, for the for the full story, um, head to cyclingtips.com to hear about how two years ago, at the height of the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic, I spent three hours getting from the bottom of Abduez to the top because I parked at the top and descended down to make sure I had to get back up to the top, which that's... Uh, you know how to motivate yourself. you got to motivate yourself, and yeah. that's a little insight into my psyche. Uh, another slightly slower than usual ride happened up Abduez today, uh, which I had the privilege of getting to see the finish of. Uh, Adrian Nianshuti, who is a Rwandan former pro, the first ever Rwandan pro cyclist, um, rode up Alpduez on a Quebec bike, which is a 16 or 18 kilogram steel thing with uh, one gear and a big rack on the back. Uh, Did they up... adjust the gear? No. he was. <laughs> there was a very low cadence Ooh. when I saw him. It, it would have been a killer for the knees. But anyway, he, he rode his way up and um, was was talking to people along the way and everyone was very happy to see him and it was a fundraiser for 
Quebecer, which is a charity that provides bikes for people in Africa, giving opportunity and access to education and employment and all of those things that bikes can do in um, in a place where people don't have cars or aren't easily able to get access to, to these things. Do we want an update on the most important competition in this Tour de France? We do. I'm glad you said yes. So, unfortunately, in your pick of Danny Martinez, he did move up two places, but he's a minute 16 and 54 seconds down. So I know you think he's going to really make the time back, but I don't think he's going to do it. One of our listeners in Velo Club uh, pointed out that I might be a bit of an idiot with that because what that implies is that Danny Martinez will not be um, just making up time on his rivals, which Mm. is... How I interpreted the question. Oh, yeah, yeah it's <laughs> the yellow jersey. <laughs> it's based on the yellow jersey, and I think it's wildly optimistic to think that our favourite street magician will be making any time back on Jonas Vingegaard. But if anyone is going it. to, it is going to be our resident sort of member of the magic circle. <laughs> True. Um, I'm going to give you some guesses for uh, for the Maya Sable, the current one. Yeah. He's in 34th. At one minute, two seconds, and two seconds, two minutes, and twenty-six seconds, and he's an American. Quinn Simmons. Incorrect. Matteo Jorgensen. Matteo Jorgensen yep. of Movistar. I um I had the privilege of seeing Matteo Jorgensen at the end of today's stage, trying to upload a Garmin ride file or, or something whilst being just surrounded by people taking his picture and he was just forced to ignore them. And I don't think that they knew who he was. They, they were just like, oh, here's a pro cyclist. I will bother him for a while. And then uh, then he left them and just rode the wrong way up the course. It was great. It must be so annoying when that happens and you've just done a ride like that and then everyone crowds you. I mean, it, like, that's, that's the nice thing is that the fans can get so close. But if you're a guy in that situation, like speaking from experience, when I spent three hours climbing up out of the I love it. Usually it's Ronan with the, the sort of like, you know, racing experience or Pippa with the racing experience. And I can be like, you know what, today, this this is a day where I can offer some of mine. No, if anyone had done that to me, I I I wouldn't have been held responsible. For, I would have been felt, held fully responsible for my actions. It wouldn't have been pretty. If I had a Garmin to upload anything from, then maybe I would have felt better. <laughs> All right. Matteo Jorgensen. Jorgensen? 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 He's, he's find out. 20, 32 seconds ahead of Rigoberto Uran, who dropped five places today. His name like I wouldn't have thought would be he, in this position that early. He was yeah. about 60th on today's stage. He was a long way back. Yeah. He was in a big group. So around this time of the race, it's it's what we often do is we we start picking who we think is going to end up there in Paris. Right? So... Who is going to lose X amount more time so they end up just past an hour in Paris? And I mean, if you look at the at the top twenty, for example, twentieth is Luis Leon Sanchez, already thirty eight minutes back. Mm. So I think we're looking even higher than that. I think we're looking at like current fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. I've got my name. I think that so. There's there's two that I am eyeing up here. I'm gonna go Coos. I was going to go Roglic. Roglic? So so th- they're all right in that zone, yeah. right? Roglic is currently 21 minutes back. Jungle Bob is 22 minutes back. And Sepkus is 24.55 back. I was going to go with Bob Jungles. I think Bob Jungles is my really? guy. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yep. Is he is he not the sort of guy who would be perceptive to the Maya Sabra? Possibly. But Sep isn't he he's he's climbing uh he's climbing well, but a lot of that is because he got away in a breakaway, right? Yes. So I, I think that as we hit the Pyrenees he's gonna he's Well, but he could get another breakaway. You're you're accusing Bob Youngles of maybe plummeting like a stone. <laughs> not in so many words. <laughs> A good point, well made. <laughs> I'm, Thanks, ending this pod- I'm ending this podcast here. We're on, ending Mikey's this podcast. <laughs> we need our Mikey. We, yeah, we do only want Mikey to. Mikey's arrived with pizzas, and we want to hear about his um, day on Abduez. We do want to hear about his day on Abduez. Mikey, just quickly. All right, so so talk us through your day. You well, got everyone. you got sent down there. Hello, you got sent that down there kind of early, uh, and you brought you know like two liters of water. You bought a whole bunch of water because it's hot out today. That wasn't enough. Turns out you uh, you were parched by the time you got back. What was what was Dutch Quarter like this this Tour de France? Because the last couple of years it's been pretty locked down down there. Yeah, and and that's what I found most surprising is it was it was kind of back to normal. Um, there were ropes set up to hold back the fans, and there was a huge police presence, but all of that was ignored. The police didn't make everyone stand behind the ropes when the riders came. Everyone was right up in their faces. It, it was. It was a normal Dutch corner, you could say. Did they trick all the Dutchies with fake uh, alcohol-free beer again? Because no. they did that last time. So, <laughs> or tried to, anyway. So there was no <laughs> huge single beer tent. Uh, everyone had their own setups. And going off of that, actually, surprisingly, Dutch corner is very international. Hmm. I would say, obviously, the road is painted orange, and, and there's a huge Dutch contingent, but... All day, I was hanging out with a French, with a couple of guys who were French, but dressed head to toe in orange. Hmm. <laughs> if you've got an orange t-shirt, you're Dutch. I think that's our learning. <laughs> that's accurate. Big shout out to those fellas. They gave me a few sausages, gave me a lot of water, and it, it was it was a pleasant day down there. But I just about died on the hike back up because <laughs> to get to Dutch Corner, it's um, far. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you can take the short way, which is about 3K, but it's straight down. And, <laughs> and obviously, you know, that's like a 25-minute pleasant walk. But then, um, yeah, just about died on the way back up. <laughs> <laughs> I, believe, I believe you told us when you got up. Granted, you were possibly hallucinating at this point. You told us that you had... <laughs> You had died and gone to heaven, which I don't think is exactly the phrase that you were looking for, but we got the gist. When I walked back into the our Airbnb, um, you, were sit- you were sitting on one side of the room, Kaylee, working away. Ian was on the other side. Mike was in between the two sort of bed sofa things, lying sideways, the laptop also sideways, just trying to like hit each individual key. I've got a photo, so maybe we could we can put that on the Velo Club or use it as the the image for today's episode. But you were in you were in a tough place. I was. So Johnny, you missed this story. Uh, Ian and Kelly heard that part of the way up. I, I'm pretty sure I saw God. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not a religious person. Until now, apparently. <laughs> Till now, but. So, so I, I was walking up, and it's insanely steep, and I'm struggling, and got my backpack on, and, and I'm in this little group of people, and, and all of a sudden, this arm comes around me, and and some some words are spoken to me in French. I have no idea what the hell they said to me, but I look over at him to my left, 
and the light, the sun was behind him, and it was just perfect, and I thought I was staring into God's eyes, and then he said some more things, and then we just turned and continued walking up the hill. Did you respond at any point, or was he just speaking to you in French? No, no, this was far enough up. I was in, I couldn't even speak. I just put one <laughs> foot foot in front of the other. So Mikey had some mild heat stroke <laughs> today. But you made it. You made it. I made it. What What else did you see on the way up, Mikey? Uh, the, the, on the way down, I saw oh, some... Oh, sorry, way down. saw some people doing some adult activities in the woods. <laughs> so you're just walking, you're just walking through the woods, minding your own business on this little path, and there's just adult activities <laughs> happening yeah, they, in a grotto? They, they were kind of <laughs> off in the woods, and I was like, oh, what's happening? And then I was like, oh, I don't want to know what's happening. <laughs> I think you knew what was happening. <laughs> Outdoors is a crazy place, everybody. Uh, it is. It's one of those. It's it's a, it's a pilgrimage for for the cycling fan. You know, it's everybody should come try to ride it like Johnny did. It is. Wow. Our our colleague over at Velo News, Andy Hood, put up a little poll on Twitter today. And granted, Twitter is full of brain worms, and so we don't sort of have to take everything that Twitter says at face value. But nonetheless, his the, the options were Alptuez. It was like you know best mountain top 10 mountain, worst mountain, something like that. And a surprising number of people apparently don't like Alp d'Huez. And I would venture to guess that those people have not been here on a Tour de France day because I have covered the tour now for 12 years or so. I've basically done all of, at some point, done all of the, the major climbs, uh, both either ridden them or covered the race that, that on days that, that went up them. There is nothing like Altuas. There is no day as crazy. There is no day with as many fans. There is no day that sort of like exists in the lore like this day does for professional cycling. And for that reason alone, you, yeah, you got to, you got to try to come sometime and, and do what Mikey did. Maybe with some small adjustments. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and just come be a fan because it's incredible out here. I mean, it, we got a message from the, the sort of head of press at, at the ASO this morning. Basically said, if you went to the start and you're trying to get to Alpe d'Huez, you better get there immediately because they were going to shut the entire way up the mountain down, even for credentialed cars like ours, because essentially there were too many fans on the road and they were worried about getting the caravan up before the race showed up. Sort of the, the nightmare scenario there is the caravan is stuck on Altuiz and and you know and Pogacar is attacking around a giant chicken or something like that, <laughs> well, that would be amazing, which though. could happen, right? Like it's it, it's come close before. It has come close in my time covering the tour. That's the nightmare scenario. But that that just tells you how how insane and how crazy this this particular mountain is. And yes. From a pure racing perspective, there are other climbs that are harder. There are other climbs that have more difficult run-ins. I think that's one of the sort of primary issues that people have with the Alp is you, you actually, you're forced to have quite a lot of relatively flat uh, kind of run into it just because the valley road extends quite far on either side. But there is no atmosphere like Alp is. And, and that's why I just, I love it. I absolutely love it when the race comes back here. And I would advocate for, for the Alp being included in every single edition of the tour in the same way that the Champs-Élysées is because it is just that it's just that good and Mikey I'm glad that you got to experience it because it's fun 
I am too. I'm, right now, I'm glad I survived the day. <laughs> so maybe maybe tomorrow I'll be able to reflect more on what I experienced. Well, maybe we'll keep bringing you into the podcast since you, usually you just sit next to us and fact check us while, while we while we podcast. I like having you on the pod. With that, we need to get to our last segment of the day. We're going to hear from Jose Bain, and today she's talking about the French Revolution. Well, because today is Bastille Day, uh, the 14th of July. Let's listen in. Well, France is celebrating the 14th of July with fireworks and grand spectacle extraordinaire when you hear this podcast, the Tour de France moves on. But maybe I should explain one day too late for the readers on cyclingtips.com what the 14th of July is and why it's the most important national holiday of the country. Sharing a little bit of history, 230 years old, a day too late can't really be a huge issue, can it? We are talking about the end of the 18th century. France had a class society of clergy, nobility, bourgeoisie and peasants. The nobility made up less than 2% of the population and the clergy about 1%. These estates paid no taxes and had a lot of power, especially the clergy. About 97% of the population belonged to the peasantry and the bourgeoisie or merchant class with the peasants being the largest group by far. They had to cough up all the taxes, but had nothing to say politically. But not only the peasants and the bourgeoisie were unhappy, the nobility was also dissatisfied from halfway into the 18th century, because under King Louis XV, they had lost several of their noble privileges as the monarch tried to distribute the taxes more fairly. In itself a great idea, but the nobility blocked all attempts at tax reform. Yes, my friends, this is something that happens in all times and ages. But back to 1789. The king, Louis XVI by now, and his wife, Marie Antoinette, were not popular, to put it mildly. They spend a lot on palaces, pensions, loans and super-duper luxuries. Marie Antoinette, for example, had bought her own luxurious farm and had incurred a lot of gambling debts. But the king was appointed and anointed by God, so who could say he was wrong? His power was absolute. And that was about to change. It was the new age of enlightenment. Several very expensive wars fought by the French king, leaving the state almost bankrupt. The church's enormous wealth and a disastrous harvest in 1788 that led to fertile grounds for revolution. It's the 14th of July, 1789 in Paris. About 20,000 Parisians headed for La Bastille, which was the most important prison. And they were aiming to loot the ammunition depot in the basement. The storming of the Bastille, the symbol of the French Ancien Régime, or the old ruling class, was one of the first major acts of violence of the French Revolution, and is considered to be the start of the revolution, marked by major uprisings of the French people against the absolute power of the king. The capture of the prison was a sign to the population that the monarchy's rule and oppression were over. Fun fact, at the time of the storm, there were only seven prisoners in the Bastille, but that didn't make it any less meaningful. In 1792, the monarchy was abolished, and a year later, Louis XVI was decapitated by guillotine, as was his wife, Marie Antoinette. Last bit of history to end today. In November of 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte seized power via a coup d'etat. 
This coup marks the end of the revolution because France goes back to absolute power again, but now with the later crowned Emperor Napoleon. Thanks to Jose for putting all these together. With that, we're gonna wrap up for today. We're gonna we're gonna eat these pizzas that Mikey just brought from downstairs. We're gonna have a quick a quick beer here on our porch with with beautiful mountains in the background, and we're gonna mentally prepare ourselves to go down into the oven tomorrow, where there is no air conditioning. Pray for us. See you tomorrow. Bye bye.